Well, good evening. My name is Aubrey, if we haven't met before. Um, very good to see you. Very glad you're here. So our structure for tonight is I'm going to talk for about 50 minutes, and then Mike Deaton is somewhere here. I saw him at one point. There's Mike. Mike is going to then lead us in a Q&A that involves writing questions, and this week we'll do some Q&A with, with you guys. And we'll have a little break in there. If you need the facilities at any point, they're right out there past Deacon. Right? Past Deacon. That's right. So we'll wrap up at 6. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we come to you. You are the source of all light and life. You are the wisdom of God. You're not just our righteousness, you're our wisdom and we need you. Help me tonight, Father, to be a good teacher. Help us all to be good students and bless us, Lord, with the kindness and grace of your Holy Spirit as we talk about some things that are so near and close to us, it's so hard to see them. Please bless us in Christ's name. Amen. If you have a Bible, and, and you might not, but if you have a Bible, uh, please turn to Acts chapter 26. The Apostle Paul is talking and he's talking to a king, King Festus. Acts chapter 26, verse 24, he says, Scripture says, And as Paul was saying these things in his defense, he's defending himself, Festus, the king, said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I am speaking true and rational words. So in Acts chapter 26, Paul has preached the gospel. And back in the first century, he's doing this to the Roman imperial elite. And he thinks that what he thinks is rational and true. But the people he's talking to, they hear the words coming out of his mouth and they think he's out of his mind. In our society today, what Christians think is true and rational about sex and about gender, it strikes many people as we're out of our mind. Like we're irrational. We don't know what we're talking about. We're in a similar position today. Uh, students, when you talk to your friends and you have two very different views of sexuality and gender or any of us, we're in a similar position today as Paul was when he was standing before Festus. The coolest kid in the room thought he was stupid, thought he was out of his mind. Now, it hasn't always been like that here in America. It wasn't like that for my parents. when they. It wasn't like that a lot for me when I was growing up. Um, but something has happened. Something really big 
has happened and changed. For over a thousand years in the West, in Western societies, the Christian beliefs about sex, the Christian beliefs have been the deep background of the way people thought about sex and gender. But over the past 50 years, this has changed. Large segments of the population, the majority of the population, now see things in a way that the way the Bible presents them looks crazy. Now, this, this view that's developed in America over the last 50 years has a name. And the name of it is secular. It's the secular view. We live no longer in a Christian society. We live in a different society. Our society is a secular society. So like I said, over the past 50 years ago, America's gone through one of the most radical reorderings of cultural values surrounding sexuality and homosexuality and gender in history. These changes have come with the speed and a thoroughness in which our surrounding culture has shifted from biblical sexual norms, even if they didn't live them out, it was the public kind of view. And on top of this, mainline Christian denominations have started ordaining people in active same-sex sexual relationships, performing gay weddings, and many evangelical churches have stopped teaching about or providing discipline for sexual sin, no matter what it is, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual. This is a seismic shift. Now look, there was certainly a lot of sexual activity outside of marriage prior to the 60s and 70s. But it was generally not something people bragged about. It wasn't something people tended to openly celebrate. In fact, they hid it. You know, you think about TV shows way back in the day. Husbands and wives had two separate beds. That's not how it was. That's just in the real lives. It's just the way they presented. Now what happened? How do we account for this radical shift? I think the best way to understand what's happened is to learn the work of a guy named Jonathan Haidt. Jonathan Haidt is a social psychologist. He taught for 16 years at UVA, and now he's at New York University Stern School of Business. He has this really important book, The title of it is The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. Now, look, he's not a Christian. In fact, he's an atheist. Um, So he's not trying to, like, I'm not just trying to claim somebody who's on my team to make an argument here. Here's what Jonathan Haidt has learned from social psychology. He says, typically, we do not logically reason our way to our moral views. So we have a hard time explaining why we think something's right or wrong because we didn't get to that view by thinking it. He says we just know in our guts what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad. So applying this insight into morality to the current issues of sexuality and gender, what I'm saying is that for many Christians, the historic Christian vision of sexuality 
wasn't a reasonable thought that they reasoned their way to. It was a gut feeling. It wasn't something that they used logic to get to. It was something they felt in their gut, and then they identified reasons to support it. It just made sense. They had no intuitive sense. They had an intuitive sense that sex outside of marriage was wrong. That sex, God didn't make Adam and Steve. He made Adam and Eve. That's not a logical argument. That's a gut feeling that you're reaching now for evidence to line up to the gut feeling. They had this intuitive sense that something was right or something was wrong. Two men having sex doesn't need to be explained. It's just wrong. I just feel it. It's wrong. And here's the important point. This view of sex, of same-sex intimacy as right or wrong, it doesn't come from reasoning our way up. Very few people have reasoned their way to their views of sex and gender. Our views are typically based on moral intuitions not on reasons. And these moral intuitions reside at a deeper level than in our heads, in our minds, in our intellect. They reside in our hearts, in our guts, and in our instincts. Now, I'm convinced that Jonathan Haidt's work is right on the money. If our views of sexuality and gender come from our moral intuitions not our moral logic. How do we get them? How do we get our moral intuitions? If our moral intuitions don't come from reason, where do they come from? And this is where Jonathan Haidt's work and all kinds of other disciplines are all saying the same thing. They come from stories. We typically absorb our views of right and wrong, our feeling about right and wrong, our belief about what's right and wrong, we absorb it from the stories that fill our lives. We're narrative animals. We define who we are and what we ought to do on the basis of the stories that we set around the campfire telling thousands and thousands of years ago or around the modern equivalent of the campfire. TikTok, Instagram, music, movies. It's the same thing, whether we're cavemen in a cave around a fire drawing pictures on the wall or we're looking at, at, at this fire device in our hand that's drawing pictures on the wall. We've always been the same. This has not changed. We're narrative animals. We define who we are and what we ought to do based on the stories that we absorb. There are three particular stories that our society tells us through songs and commercials and Facebook rants and Snapchat and Fox News or CNN, whatever your pick is, and Instagram or Twitch or Be Real. Three plot lines that shape our views, all of us, Christians and non-Christians, three basic plot lines that shape, that determine our feeling about what's right and what's wrong when it comes to sex and gender. One of them is the plot, our society, in the church, in our Christian schools, and in our secular schools. This is, this is pervasive. One of them is the story that we tell about identity. The second is the story we tell about freedom. And the third is the story we tell about romance. 
Those are the three fundamental stories that form inside of us our moral intuitions that shape what we feel is right or wrong. Tonight, we're going to look at the narratives, the stories of identity that shape our moral intuitions about sex and gender. Next week, we're going to look at the stories of freedom. And the third then week after that, we'll look at the stories of romantic love. Now, tonight, I'm, I'm going to talk about the stories that we tell in our churches and in our schools, in our Christian schools and in our homeschools. I'm going to look at the stories we tell about identity in our secular age. I'm going to look at the particular stories, and I'm going to talk about what's good and what's broken in those stories. And then I'm going to try to go to Scripture and see how it provides a way forward, kind of helping us hold the good and reject the bad. Okay, so identity in our secular age. The first three parts to this, and this first is the stories, and it's by far, the first part is going to be the longest. So when we're almost out of time, I'll do the last two parts, so don't. Don't try to time me and think, oh, wow, we're going to be here till tomorrow. All right. The source of identity in the stories of our secular age. The first and most important story that our society tells us about identity is this. Your identity comes from within. Christians tell that story. Whenever you have asked somebody, what do you really want to do? You're telling the exact same story as our secular culture tells What is your passion is the Christian version of look inside. This is in the homeschool. It's in the Christian school. It's in the public school. It's in the church. It's everywhere. This idea that your identity comes from within you. So when it comes to the question, who am I? Our society has a deep-rooted conviction that who I am, I find that by looking in. The real you is deep inside of you. So think about your grandparents' favorite musical, The Sound of Music. There's this moment when the mother superior sings to Maria, played by Julie Andrews, and she tells the young Maria that she must climb every mountain, search high and low, follow every byway, every path you know, climb every mountain, ford every stream, follow every rainbow till you find your dream. Now, teenagers, you need to mock your grandparents for that. They fed you that crap. You didn't make that up. That got here way before Instagram or Snapchat. A dream, the next line is, a dream that will need all the love you can give every day of your life as long as you live. This is the fundamental narrative arc of the modern hero. Whether it's a country western song or Drake or Doja Cat or a Christian romance novelist. Super Bowl commercial, it's all there. And we've been told this story so many times in so many really good ways. We cheer for it, we sing for it, we cry over it. It it gets awards at our awards shows. We've all absorbed it all the way into our bloodstream. It's, It's in our guts. And this view of identity seems obviously right. It's become an unquestioned piece of common sense. We absorb this view of reality. We don't reason our way to it. We We sing our way to it. We cry our way to it. We laugh our way to it. We feel it, and then we start arguing for it. And as a result, it appears to be true just the way it is, but here's the deal. Live in a different society, and that looks crazy. 
live in other societies and they tell a very different story of identity. For example, the traditional story of identity in traditional cultures outside of the West. Your identity doesn't come from within. It comes from your family. It comes from your people group, a family, a people group. They assign you a role and a set of responsibilities and duties that go with your role. And your identity is wrapped up. Your sense of self-worth and significance is not wrapped up in your deepest desire. It's wrapped up in the responsibility your tribe has given you. So here's an example. Ask a person in a non-Western culture, who are you? And they're most likely to say something like, I'm a daughter. I'm a father. I'm a son. I can't tell you how many times I've heard Christian preachers say, somebody asked me one time, who are you? And I told them about my job. And then I realized, wait a minute, I'm not my job. I'm a child of God. As if that was some self-evident piece of truth. No, that's just a cultural way of thinking about who are you. Here's an example of it. If you've ever had a friend from Korea and you ask a a person who's Korean, what their name is, they're going to give you their family name first. And then they're going to give you their personal name. And that's a very good expression of identity in non-Western cultures and ancient cultures. Your identity comes not from within, but from your duties and your roles. It's assigned to you. And if you fulfill your duties and you fulfill your roles and you give up your deepest desires and you yield them in order to fulfill your role and duty then you're mature, then you're secure, then your family and your culture gives you dignity and honor and you receive it and you live with it. Your deepest self-worth depends on your dignity, but your dignity comes from your community saying he yielded himself to fulfill his role. Now in our society, our approach to identity says no, The most powerful, mature person is Elsa, who says, let it go. (laughs) It doesn't matter. What your family is putting on you is, is is a prison. And she has dignity. And she has worth. You bestow dignity on yourself when you have the courage to resist responsibilities and roles given to you as you assert your desires and your dreams. This is a moral absolute in our culture today. You be you, boo. Now, remember what we're doing. We're naming the stories our society tells us about identity that shape our gut-level views of sex and gender. And the first story is that the source of your identity is within your own self. You find the real you by looking in, by discovering your deepest dreams and desires. That's the first issue. The second issue is that sex in our society today is essential to you being you. It's essential to your identity. Kristen Dombeck, an essayist and cultural journalist writing for the New York Times back in 2015, she said 60 years after Kinsey, uh, Alfred Kinsey did all the sex Um, psychology stuff. 60 years after Kinsey, many of us have come to regard sex, preferably passionate, hot, transformative sex, as central to our lives. Mark Regnerus, a sociologist from the University of Texas at Austin, he put it this way, great sex is now a hallmark of the great life. 
Over the last couple of centuries, we've begun to believe that our sexual desires reveal some fundamental truth about who we are, that we have an obligation to seek out that truth and express it, and finding our sexual orientation is now the rite of passage. Figure out if you're homosexual or heterosexual or queer or bi. It's become a fundamental step in the coming-to-age story. Watch coming-to-age movies 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Watch them now. And at the heart of them now is often the discovery of your sexual orientation. That is a change. It's this idea that sex is essential to being you. Finding your sexual identity is absolutely critical. It's funny, uh, somebody did this remarkable um, research of Google and psychology research papers and books, and they found that we no longer are using the word sexual desires as much as it's become eclipsed by the phrase sexual needs. It's eclipsed it by like 300%. Sexual needs. Is, a, is, is this new kind of thing in the research literature on Google instead of sexual desires. Quality sexual experiences are perceived to be pivotal to human flourishing, as important as clean air and potable water and edible food and ample shelter and antibiotics. Our urge to have sex is now both irresistible and more fundamental to your identity than impulses and appetites. All right. So the story our society is telling us is that your identity comes from within. Sex is central to your identity. And third, the path to happiness is sexual self-fulfillment, is sexual fulfillment. Here's a great way to see what I'm talking about. In traditional non-Western cultures, the stories about heroes, the stories they tell around campfires, the stories that they love and memorize, They're always about the hero performing self-sacrifice. Like I said earlier, you're your duties, you're your worth. It depends on the honor bestowed on you for fulfilling your responsibilities. What is the hero arc in our stories today? The hero arc in the secular culture is not self-sacrifice. The hero doesn't sacrifice. The hero arc is self-assertion. You don't discover who you are by sublimating your needs to the community or the family. Each person has a unique core of feeling and intuition. That in, in the hero arc is to let that unfold, to express that. You have to look inside. You have to look to your deepest desires, your authentic self. You've got to let that come out. The worst thing we can do in our society, the anti-hero is the one who conforms. In our society, the hero is the one who self-asserts. In non-Western societies, the hero is the one who sublimates and sacrifices. So let's put these three components together. The story our secular age tells us about identity goes like this. Each one of us has an inner self, a true self, and you have a moral obligation to discover that self and express it to the world. The true self is absolutely tied to your sexual identity, being true to yourself regardless of, and especially in spite of 
society's views or religion's views, that is the highest virtue. Self over religion, self over society, self over culture. And if you take that path, you will finally find happiness. That's the story our secular age tells. Hypocrisy used to mean doing something inconsistent with your beliefs. Today, hypocrisy means doing something inconsistent with the deepest you. So that's my first point about identity tonight. That view of identity we get from our secular age. All right, second point. What's good, what's bad about it? There is so much good about it. There is so much good. After all, not long ago, there was this rigid, exploitative social system that we had to live in, and it definitely stemmed from a traditional way of understanding identity. You were your rung on the ladder. You related to the world not as an individual, but as a cobbler or an engineer. You related to the world through your family, through your class. Your mission in life was to know your place, fulfill your assigned role, and there was virtually no way out, virtually no mobility. And we should give thanks for the ways that the secular view of identity has helped us change that, has helped us escape unfair circumstances and injustices. Secular doesn't in this sense mean absent of God. Think about how our secular age has embraced equality. And think about how this has given the fight for equity a moral quality that has rarely existed in human history. Our secular age is intensely moral in many ways. It is more committed to social justice, universal benevolence, and human rights than any civilization before it. And this is because in the Enlightenment, there was a tilt toward the individual, the sacredness of the individual. And this has given a generation of women finally the opportunity, women who have been subjected to psychological and physical abuse. We finally live in a moment where our society is beginning to offer broad pathways away from a vice-like control by a man. In our secular age, we've finally been able to bring women's skills and gifts into the world of commerce and governance. People who have been sexually abused and discriminated against by establishment elites are beginning to be able to stand up and to fight for their rights. And whenever we come across the defeat of injustice and unfairness, no matter where it is, Christians should be the first to celebrate it the first to recognize it, the first to recognize that this reflects the heart of God himself. In other words, the good old days weren't that good for a lot of people. Our society prior to the secular turn was not wonderful for everybody. There was slavery in its pre-Civil War form of chattel slavery, in its post-Civil War form of Jim Crow, and in its post-civil rights form of mass incarceration. We must be thankful for our secular age elevating tolerance and a compassion-driven morality and freedom and choice. So much of that is so good, and that is the spirit of God in our secular age. There is a reason our secular age has won. And it's not only because bad things happen. 
That's a naive view of the secular age. A, a, one of the reasons our secular age has triumphed is because the traditional modern age, the golden past, was not good. And the secular age does represent the hopes and dreams of millions, if not billions of people who see in secularism their best hope for flourishing. And yet, there are cracks developing in our secular age, fissures. The way our secular society approaches identity has some incredible strengths and some problems. And trying to say that our secular age, taking it as just all good, is like our grandparents taking the 50s and the 40s and the 30s and the 20s as all good. Let's not repeat that mistake. Let's not just assume because now it helps us, it's helping everybody. Three problems in particular in our secular age. One is a deceit. There's a, there's a deceit in the secular age that we need to recognize. A second is a confusion. And a third is an insecurity. So let's live in the secular age. And let's do what we wish our great-grandparents had done in their age. Let's purge the bad and let's hold the good. All right, first of all, our society in its story about identity is not telling the whole truth. It's telling a partial truth. There's a deceit. And to show you this, I'm going to plagiarize. I'm going to totally steal a story from Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City. He's written it in several books and speeches, and it goes like this. So I'm trying to show you a way that the, our society says, look within for your identity. I'm trying to show you the way there's a deceit in that view. Here it is. Let's do a little thought experiment, okay? Imagine that you're an Anglo-Saxon warrior 1,400 years ago in the year 800 AD. Can you imagine that, Shay? <laughs> now imagine that you, this Anglo-Saxon warrior, you have two very strong internal desires and impulses and feelings. One is aggression. When people show you disrespect, your natural response is violence. You like to smash things and kill people that disrespect you. You like to fight. You like that. Now remember, you're an Anglo-Saxon warrior. You're looking into your heart and there's this strong inner desire to smash. Now, in this little thought experiment, imagine that the other deep desire in you is a same-sex attraction. And for as long as you can remember, you've been drawn, even as a child, to other males in some vaguely confusing way. But then after puberty, it, you came to realize that this is a steady, strong, unremitting, exclusive sexual attraction to other men. And you really don't have any sexual attraction to women. When all the other guys are raping and pillaging in the spoils of war, you can't really get there. All right? All right, so we're doing a thought experiment. Now, this Anglo-Saxon warrior, he's living, we know, we know that he's living in an honor-shame culture with a warrior ethic. And so from what we know of that culture, when he looked inside and saw these two different feelings, he saw the aggression and probably thought, oh, yeah, that's me. That's who I am. I will express that. And he would have no shame over, or regret over smashing and fighting and killing and being violent. But what would he think when he looked inside and saw this same-sex attraction in that honor-shame culture? 
Well, what we know from history and archaeology and, and all the ways we can look back into those cultures, we know that when it comes to his erotic desires for other men, he would have felt shame. And he would have said, that's not me. Push that down. Control and suppress that impulse. Okay. Now let's shift our thought experiment to New York City today. Imagine a man, a businessman, walking around New York City, looks in his heart, and he sees two deep impulses. One is he likes to smash people and kill people and be violent. And if somebody cuts him off, he likes to chase them down and shoot them. He also recognizes that when he looks around and sees other men, he has erotic attraction to other men. Now, what will he say when he looks at the aggression in himself, this modern New York businessman? He will say, that's not me. That's not who I want to be. And he'll go to therapy or some anger management group therapy or some program. But when it comes to his sexual desire, what will that New York businessman say today? He'll say, that's me. And I need to express that. Now, this illustration shows the deceit behind our secular stories view of identity from within. It shows that our secular society tells us that your inward desires are simple. And all you got to do is let them come out. You, you see, you can have a lot of feelings inside of you, but you're always going to push some down and you're always going to cling to others. And it's largely determined by the values of your society. None of us identify with all of our deep desires. All of us use a filter, a set of beliefs. And it's this values-laden filter that shapes which of the internal desires we decide to go on the hero journey and bring out to the public. And where do we get that filter? Where did that Anglo-Saxon warrior decide to embrace aggression and to resist same-sex attraction. He got that filter from the stories being told around the campfire. And we get our filter to turn away from aggression and embrace, embrace whatever else from our stories. It's misleading to the point of dishonesty to say, I just have to be myself no matter what anyone else thinks. Because yourself is always defined by what other people think. See, the modern person is less free than she thinks. And yes, it's true that at least the modern person has a wider range of options. But it's foolish to ignore the force of today's cultural expectations telling us which of the options we should choose or not. The power of culture to shape our attitudes and expectations is no less today than it was then. We just deceive ourselves into thinking it doesn't exist. So that's the first problem with the secular approach to identity. It traps us in the prison of self-deceit. The second problem, and this one's much shorter, the second problem is that focusing on our deepest desires, is, it, it can get very confusing. I mean, which one of them are you going to focus on? You want a certain career, but then you fall in love with somebody else who you'd like to be with very much. And because of the particular nature of your career in this relationship, you can't have both. What are you going to do? You might insist that one of these desires, your career desire, your love desire, find which one is deeper inside of you, but that's naive. 
The desires inside of you don't rank in a hierarchy. They're confusing. They're all over the place. They're like billiard balls. You wake up one day, you had pizza last night, and now you want this. You know, you wake up another day and that. Sigmund Freud told us. Sigmund Freud said our innermost being is filled with, quote, unsociable chaos. Desires for power, love, comfort, and control, which vie with one another and would trample on the others to reach their goal if they could. He's right. Our inner desires change a lot. So an identity based on dreams and desires is always going to be shifting. It's going to be unstable. And that gets really frustrating. You can never know if there are any parts of yourself that you haven't discovered yet. A third problem with the contemporary approach to identity is that it can be crushing. The, the modern approach to identity is overwhelming. In traditional societies, if you were simply a good son or a good daughter or a good husband or wife or father or mother, you were doing everything your society required. And so on the one hand, it could be smothering and confining. But on the other hand, the bar for recognition wasn't very high. Like just do good enough. Alan DeBotton, he's a philosopher. He's an atheist. I'm not trying... I'm, I'm trying my hardest not to just, I don't just read Christian writers as I'm trying to think about this. Alan DeBotton's been thinking a lot about identity. He wrote a book called Status Anxiety, and he makes the strong point that the modern approach to identity creates more anxiety than the traditional approach. The modern process of finding yourself tells you to go out and create a self from scratch. Identify your dreams, especially the most vivid ones. And do this when you're 15 and when you're 16 and you haven't even had hardly enough experiences in life. And then find that and bring that to the world. And if you do that, you succeed. And if you don't, you're a failure. That prospect crushes so many in our society where money or looks or power or success or sophistication or romantic love all become the necessary identity factors. So because of this, our society has a pervasive insecurity that previous societies didn't have. Our society is drunk on affirmation. And there's a growing body of research to indicate that the recent increase in self-harm and associated borderline issues among young people is partly attributable to the fragility of the modern self. All right, almost done. We've identified the secular approach to identity. We've seen some of the good things about it, some of the bad things. Now let's turn, third and final section, how does Scripture teach us to think about identity? Well, first of all, let's talk about in the Bible, where does identity come from? In the Bible, identity does come from within, but it comes from within from God. There's some real overlap between the Christian view and the current view in our secular age. The Bible places a high priority on the inner life. The Bible says, above all else, guard your heart, not your mind. Guard your heart, for it's the wellspring of life. The Bible places a massive priority on the inner life. On your heart, on your passion, on your love. But our secular age has gone further than that. It takes the importance of the inner life and it enthrones it. It's made ourselves the center of our world. 
And we have to relate everything to ourselves. But remember, when we look within, we always use a grid, a filter to determine what's inside of us, what's worth keeping, what should we resist. The challenge is to take ourselves that we find within and to choose wisely which impulses and desires to follow and which to resist. A good way to see how the Bible handles identity is to look at the hero in the Bible. What is the hero story in the Bible? Well, one of the most famous heroes in the Bible is King David. Now, what about King David in his dramatic battle with Goliath when he becomes the hero of all heroes in the Bible at that point? At the climactic moment when David is facing Goliath, David said, quote, 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 37, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And then again in verse 47, all those gathered here will know that the Lord saves not with the sword and the spear for the battle is the Lord's. He will give you Goliath into our hand. Now compare that climactic moment of David and Goliath with the sound of music or frozen. In Froze or Rocky, or my favorite of all of these, Dream Girls. Have you seen Beyonce when she sings that song in there? Holy cow. So good. The climactic moment that enables the conflict to be resolved in our stories is when the hero looks in and trusts themselves. The climactic moment in David and Goliath is when he looks outside of himself and trusts God. We have to look outside of ourselves. We have to connect to something else. If we're going to become our true self, David puts his trust in another hero in the climactic moment. The plot doesn't resolve through the inner journey to strength. It resolves through opening himself up to one who can lead him through the chaos of his inner desires. My point is that in the stories that fill our secular age, that story, the hero looking outside in the most important moment, we just haven't made great movies about it. We could. We have the capacity for making great movies. We have the capacity for making movies that move us to tears and joy and inspire us. We just, that story doesn't get told enough. And because it doesn't get told enough, it doesn't get into our bloodstream enough. The second thing that scripture tells us about this whole issue of identity and sex is this. Sex is dynamic. It is not essential. Sex is a dynamic part of our character, not an essential part of our character. The Bible recognizing that sexu recognizes sexuality is really important. But in our, sexual, our secular age, we tend to think that sexual fulfillment is of ultimate importance. The problem is... We've not only put ourselves on the throne of our identity, we've put right next to it our sexuality. What the Christian vision of sexuality rejects is seeing sex as essential to being fulfilled and happy. Look at Jesus. Jesus was fully human. Who wouldn't want to be around Jesus? You read Jesus in the Gospels, you want to be there. Here's a fully realized human. He's sexually contented. And yet he never engaged in sex. 
In our hypersexualized contemporary culture, it is almost inconceivable that somebody could be like Jesus, sexually chaste or celibate, and still be fully human and fully alive. Our culture believes that sexual activity is the most direct path to maturity, to personal fulfillment, to self-realization, to being truly human and fully alive, fully yourself. Our society has this deep-seated belief that to deny yourself sexual experience is to undermine your humanity. But Jesus' life deconstructs that. Sexual activity is not essential for human flourishing or personal fulfillment, if he is than the profoundly disabled among us. To hell with them. They don't have a chance. The elderly among us. Let's find euthanasia because they can't really experience life to its fullness anymore. And everybody but but the celebrities on Instagram. Everybody, like this is just bizarre. The son of God thoroughly biologically sexed, lived a sex-free, fully contented life. Not easy, not pain-free, but a whole and deep and rich human life. You don't need sex to be satisfied. Jesus did it, and he was supremely satisfied. No one is ultimately defined by their sexual desires, whatever they are. No one is ultimately defined by their sexual orientation or their sexual inclination or their sexual attractions. Don't let anybody reduce you to your sex life. We each have different sexual desires and impulses and interests, but the deepest answer to the question of who are you is found not in your sexual orientation or attractions, but in your human nature. Finally, last, and I'll be quick here. The path to happiness is in a relationship of love with God and others. The problem with the path to fulfillment on offer in our secular society, we've become so focused on our inner life and our deep desires that we end up curving in on ourselves, missing the love and intimacy that our souls really crave. The Christian view of identity and sexuality is built on the belief that humans are made for relationships. And we can find our deepest fulfillment when seeking sex, when seeking not sexual fulfillment, but when living and engaging in the full constellation of healthy human relationships. The problem with our secular age is not self-fulfillment per se, but it's when we make self-fulfillment the highest goal. When you look at the story the Bible tells about self-fulfillment, You don't see someone spending their life searching for other people to make them happy. You see people cultivating relationships. Relationships that they already have, that they receive. In Christianity, we see a vision of life where the quality of your life is determined by the quality of your relationships. So in the Christian vision, the inner life really does matter. Your unique identity does matter. And it's important to go on that inward journey. But the movement inward must also be accompanied by movement outward and upward. We find ourselves in the faces of others. And in the relationship of love with our creator. All right. So that's the end of tonight. I've covered a lot of ground. Let me just summarize it. 
when it comes to sexuality and sex and gender and human flourishing in our society today, our views sit on top of what social psychology call moral intuitions. We don't reason our way up to what we think is good or bad or right or wrong when it comes to sex. We have these gut level feelings about it. And our gut level feelings about what's right and what's wrong come to us from the deep stories our society tells regarding identity and freedom and love. And tonight we've looked at the deep stories our society tells us about identity. And on this issue, the basic moral intuition of our secular age is that each one of us has an inner self, a true self. And the true self includes your sexual orientation and identity. And to be healthy and whole and fulfilled, you've got to discover it and you've got to realize it. And if anybody resists it, then you can really become the hero. Be true to yourself regardless of, even in spite of societal norms. That's the highest virtue. And that's what leads to the greatest fulfillment. That's the story our society tells. The Bible tells a story in which human sexuality is really important, but it's not everything. And that our inner lives, as as Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things who can know it. And then two verses later, the Lord knows it. We need to look outside of ourselves in order to find a God who can lead us into ourselves so that we can become our true selves. All right, I'm going to stop there. Mike. time you know what this is uh, you're going to get three different colored cards they each have a prompt on them you'll get a pencil too and uh, you can take a few minutes to think about how you would respond to those this is a chance for you to reflect on what you've heard this evening what are some things that maybe struck you like wow that was that was really something that meant a lot to me uh, what are some things that were confusing to you and you'd like some explanation about, and if and uh, maybe a step beyond that, is there a particular question that you would like answered? And then as you finish a card, hold it up, and we'll get somebody, uh, those of you who are passing them out, if you keep your eyes open, hold it up, and we'll come around and pick them up from you. We're going to, a group of us are going to gather up here in front, we're going to read through these and try and pick out some representative questions and comments. I'll probably ask a question or two of Aubrey before that, just to uh, buy some time for everybody to sort through those cards. Um, if you're still writing and we start ans- asking questions, keep writing and hold up your card and we'll try and get around and get to it so we can uh, have those. These are anonymous. Do not put your name on them. We don't, we don't want that. We thought this was a better way for you to, to provide this feedback. So please uh, take a minute to do that. We'll give you about uh, six, seven minutes and then we'll, cl- we'll start collecting those. Are you about ready? We're still going through them, but okay. Uh, so, Aubrey, you talked about this uh, this idea of uh, what did you call it? Identity insecurity, or uh, yes, uh, yeah, that we're drunk. The society's drunk on affirmation. I guess is the phrase you used. Drunk on affirmation. Drunk on affirmation. So, uh, I think that many here probably are struggling with the idea that they do want affirmation. Mm-hmm. They do need, feel like they need affirmation. And maybe sometimes it feels like it's, they're a little overwhelmed with needing it. They're preoccupied with you know, what others might think of them. Uh, how does what you said tonight, how, what would you say to that person to help them kind of move to a healthier place around that? 
go see a therapist. For real. This is like cancer. It's not a thing we can fix with aspirin. It is so broken in our culture right now. We have these enormous recent rates of anxiety disorders. Um, And I really think trying to combat that with home remedies is like people living in the wake of Chernobyl and trying to combat that with home remedies. This is out Thankfully, the mental health profession has gained a tremendous amount of knowledge in a time when the world needs it. My grandparents didn't need it, like on this level, on this issue. So it, it, it really is. It's beyond my skill as a priest. It's, it's on a different wavelength than learn to see yourself in Christ. What's going on with so many people, is very serious. And the good news is, therapy is reasonably affordable and available. And if you can't afford it, our church will pay for it for you. Um, But don't underestimate crippling anxiety. And And don't think that this is stuff that the mental health world knows how to deal with. They, They know how to treat this, just like they know how to Just like our doctors in our hospitals know how to treat pneumonia. This is something they know. It's not confusing to them. So I I would definitely outsource on that level. Now, yeah. Well, okay, quick question about that. Is it... Is there a risk if you go to therapy that you're going to get told the story of the age here? You know, we yeah. just need to look inside. <laughs> you know, I mean, how, how do you sort through that or how do you, any, any guidance on how? Say that again so Zelda can answer it. Oh, you couldn't hear it? Okay, so uh, it, there's always a risk if you go to a therapist in today's age that they're going to tell you the story, basically, that Aubrey talked about that you need to just look inside. The reason you have an affirmation problem is you just, you're just... I haven't found that to be the case. I, 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 don't, I think that's a kind of an urban myth. Sean, do, do you think that's a, a very scary op- possibility? Sean's a psychotherapist, a therapist who likes psychotherapy. (laughs) I've I've been told that stress and anxiety, and I've found that there's a lot of mental health workers in our community who have very good skills for dealing with it. Yeah, so I've got a, you know, I I recommend therapy often. Um, I think that the evangelical church is far more afraid of the dangers of the therapy world than they should be. It's not what the evangelical church thinks of it. There is so much evidence-based therapy 
that it doesn't require a Christian or non-Christian. There are just some really proven ways of dealing with things. If you don't think that you're willing to go to a non-Christian therapist, I think you should be. I think you should treat therapy the way you treat brain surgery. Um, You will let the best brain surgeon hack away inside your brain, whether they're Christian or not. But if you're nervous about that, come and talk to me, and I'm happy to help you find Christian therapy options or non-Christian therapy options. Okay, that's good. Do you you all have All right. Hey, Callie. Hi, Aubrey. (laughs) How are you? (laughs) My palms are a little sweaty. Okay. There are a lot of questions around. uh, We have two opposing uh, views of where identity comes from, from our campfire stories. Either it comes from outside or it comes from inside. A lot of people have questions about if someone is so steeped in that you find your identity from the inside, how do you even begin to present the idea that that doesn't have to be the highest truth? Well, f- first of all, let me, let me say something. To I didn't mean to give the in question identity is either from inside or outside. I do think that, I, that each one of us is an unrepeatable, unique person. And that it does require an inward journey to discover the unrepeatably unique person God made you to be. But the Christian view is slightly different from that. It's that God helps us do that. And that God who made the inside of us, helps us navigate the chaos of our inner world. So it's not either outside or inside. It's more about opening our lives up to God so that he can help us navigate and discover the true us who is inside of us. So it's kind of a given identity, but it's a given identity that works with the grain of us. So does that change your question or no? I don't think so. so. It's part of what you're saying. You kind of tap into what makes sense to people. So it would make sense to people to say you do have a true, you have an identity that is individual, that is uniquely you. And the answer isn't to just, uh, all the answers are inside of yourself, but that you, you open up God into that yeah, process. That's, okay, so that's, that would be a helpful way to explain it to someone who well, that's a foreign concept. So, and so your question was, um, how do we talk about this to people who are so steeped? Yes. That's a really, so one of the ways I think it's helpful is to try to either show them, in love, try to show them the inconsistencies that they're facing. It's not working. It it, it just, it's not working to only look inside. And I think that we need really wise people who can help us say this in a way that doesn't sound like, um... They don't count. Uh, but how to do that or to do it better than I've been trying to do, I, d- I don't know. That's a good one. Next. Um, there's a question here about um, how we as individuals who are married or we as a church can speak to, can sort of dismantle this idea that self-fulfillment is found in sex um, when as a church, the majority of Western churches are really focused on marriage and family. Um, and then again, as a, as a married person, if you're experiencing sex, how can you say, oh yeah, but don't worry, that's not true fulfillment. So I guess there's sort of two parts of that. There's sort of yeah. the individual experience and then the church emphasis. It's so good and it's right. The evangelical church has made an idol out of the family 
um, in a way the Roman Catholic Church hasn't. Because of the Roman Catholic veneration of Mary, it's been able to hold the single life as a heroic and worthy vocation because evangelicals threw the Catholic baby out with the bathwater and have been so afraid of revering Mary, even though the Bible tells us, blessed art thou among women. And because the Catholic Church, from the resurrection of Jesus, has identified singleness as a holy vocation, the Catholic Church, through its single priesthood and its veneration of Mary, has found ways to resist the idolatry of the family. The evangelical church has given the impression that to grow up you get married and you have children. And um, to the point of evangelical churches being uneasy, even having a pastor who hasn't been married. Um, And so I do think the evangelical church has much to repent of. Um, and And I think it needs to put repentance into practice by having leaders that are single, by having a critical mass of the leadership of the church that's single, by not treating their children as if marriage is the default. We have got to stop saying to our kids, when you grow up and get married, and we have got to start saying to our kids, when you grow up, if you get married, that'll be great. If you don't, that'll be great. And we've got to make two paths equally beautiful. And until we do that so much that a person can look up in a church and they see lives that are full of love and relationship in a single vocation or married vocation, then we have so far to go. So absolutely, we have egg on our face in the evangelical church when it comes to this we cannot talk wisely about homosexuality um, because we've made an idol out of the family and Jesus pushed against this Jesus said you have to leave your wife and father and mother not your wife you have to leave your father and mother (laughs) sorry Janelle Do you know why Jesus had all those sayings about leave your father and mother? Because the Roman culture had idolized the family. And the evangelical culture has done the exact same thing. And we've got to recognize that um, there are pathways to love in the single life. And so, yes. All right, you said, no. How can we talk about sex as an adequate pathway um, when we've made an idol, well, I use that word, made an idol out of family. And what was the other one? The other one is maybe how can a married person sort of claim it's not central to fulfillment when they are? Yeah, that's really, that's really good. Um, first of all, do not assume that all married people are having sex. I'm a priest. I know lots of married people are not having sex. They're talking to me about that. I, I, and I'm sure the mental health professionals in the room do too. Um, so... That's, that's, a, that's a big, bad assumption to make. Um, sexual pain and sexual frustration is a very significant part of the married world. Um, and, and not, 
the married people are just as diverse in their sex drives as, as single people are. Um, so yeah, how, how can I say that? I, I guess that I can say that based on the, the historic witness of the church. There are so many people in the church who live very fulfilled lives without having sex. And our Lord did. So many people in our church do after they lose a spouse. Uh, through death or divorce. So many people in our church do because they don't get married or prior to marriage. So. I'm going to talk. The last session. Oh, you can come on up. Bob. The last session is all going to be about the vocation of singleness and the vocation of marriage and trying to hold these two up as two vibrant pathways that we have to open up and stop just elevating marriage in the ways that's hurt us. I'm going to talk the whole time in my last teaching on that in, a few, in eight weeks or seven weeks or however long. Hey, this Bob. This is sort of uh, a little bit of a follow-up on things that Joanna was saying. And it's just speak so the mic picks you up so that online. a little bit of a follow-up on some of the things that Joanna asked, um, and it's also a two-parter, so get ready. Uh, the first one is, uh, and you have to exclude the Catholic Church from this, I think, to make it uh, a good question, and that is, or a good answer. Man, uh, taking away most I, of I, my I answer. Uh, <laughs> can, you, can you hold out an evangelical church that has done a good job of nurturing the, the life of singleness as a valid Christian vocation? Uh, second part is, you, you say that the Bible holds up uh, sex as a, a very dynamic thing, a very important thing, uh, going all the way back to the story of creation, right? Uh, how, how can it be that dynamic and then not be essential? So, the first part now, yeah. ask it again. Uh, can you think of an evangelical church that's done a, a good job of holding up the single life as a valid Christian vocation? The evangelical church that's coming to my mind is the one that's led by a celibate gay man. Um... It's Memorial Presbyterian Church in St. Louis, and the pastor is, it's Memorial, right? Is that the? Yes. Okay. It's where Callie and Wilson went. The pastor is Greg Johnson. He wrote a marvelous book, Still Time to Care, about the history of the evangelical church's relationship to the LGBTQ community, and he's a single man, and by virtue of him being single and being the leader of that church, it creates space in ways that our marriage-centric evangelical churches don't. Another is, for many, many years, a very famous Anglican pastor was John Stott in the church that he was a single man, and the church that he led, by virtue of the fact that he was a single man, created lots of space for this, and they didn't put up with this baloney of idolizing the mar married life as more mature than unmarried life. Um, but the trick there, it's, it's interesting, as I've been looking for evangelical churches that are orthodox on, the LG, on sexuality and welcoming, like I'm trying to ask our church to be, I, I've found four or five in America. And it's not because they wanted to be unwelcoming. It's just some gravity. And it, on this issue, it's very similar. 
the evangelical church has just taken marriage as the default mature place to be. And married pastors just always tell married stories and stories about their kids. And it just slowly... So unfortunately, I don't know of very many churches. I, I mean, maybe we could find if we looked around this room. So, but I know of a couple, but not very many. Um, I hope that our church is getting better at it. So, so the second question is, if the Bible presents sex as such a dynamic, important element of human being, how can you say it's not essential? Or how can we say it's not yeah. essential? So I think it's very important to think about our words and the difference between dynamic, which is the word I used, and powerful, and essential. Um, I think the biggest reason I can say it's not essential is because our Lord Jesus Christ was fully human, tempted in every way as we are, yet was not only without sin, was without having sex. So just as from a theological perspective, if Jesus was fully human and was a human as humans are meant to be, and the fact that he did not have sex, that has to fundamentally change our theology. And by the way, if you're married and you're really frustrated with your spouse's sex drive being less than yours, stop acting like it's a right. It's not. It's not a right. In the verse that you're thinking of, that's not what that verse means. <laughs> I'm not going to quote the verse for you, nincompoops, who might end up using the verse as a weapon against no. Your body does not belong to yourself, but to that. It's not a right. Um, the... And in us thinking that sex is essential leads to spouses overpressuring each other and single people thinking that they're doomed. It's twisting and hurting people in marriage and outside of marriage. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word of the Lord. We've got to come to the place. So the Christian evangelical woman who is frustrated with her husband for not having sex with her as much as she wants to and is harming him out of her pain is reading the same script that the LGBTQ person who says, I can't have a life without sex is reading. They're both reading that same script. And that script is that sex is essential. And that is a distorting lie. Um, this is not directly related to today, but I think it's, I think on a lot of people's minds. Are people born naturally with the same sex attraction or is it developed through environmental experiences? Um, we don't know. The, the best, most recent psychological data, it, it, it all says the same. It all says we don't know. Um, the U.S. government has massively funded scientific research into seeing if homosexual, if sexual orientation is hardwired. 
Um, it has not funded hardly any research into its social formation. Because of that, we don't have a complete set of research data. Um, what the DSM, whatever the latest DS5, what DSM5, the, the manual for diagnosing um, mental kind of stuff, what it, it says, what Christian psychologists who are working on this, what they all say is, we're pretty sure it's both. That people can be born with a profound propensity and societal factors can shape it. Now, that, that's what the recent psychological literature is saying. If we discover that sexual attraction... Look, when we talk about this, we need to talk in three levels. Sexual attraction, sexual orientation, and sexual identity. And this is a helpful way. We'll do more of this when I actually get to homosexuality and stuff later. But if, if we ever discover that it truly is hardwired, Christians should be the least surprised of all the people in the world. That does not threaten our theology at all. Um, so yeah, I think the most recent research, and I'm not a psychologist, this is not my area of expertise, I have been reading on this as much as I can, and it seems that over and over the same thing is said, that um, there's a spectrum, that some people are born the old, there, there was this lie going on in the church for about 30 years that said um, the male homosexual was um, trying to compensate for a broken relationship with parents. And it produced this idea that if you can heal the father wound, you can pray the gay away. And that's, that, that proved false. That f- proved very, very harmful. And so I have, I have LGBTQ friends who had great parents, great relationships with their parents, and no trauma in their lives. And then I've got other LGBTQ friends. I've got one particular friend who um, had a very abusive relationship, a woman who had a very abusive relationship with a man. And this woman, she's about my age. She decided after that, men are not safe. Um, so I don't, is this answering what well, you're asking? A little asking? bit, and I think maybe... Uh Sort of the corollary question of that is uh, many, uh, I've thought, and many people I think I've heard express the idea that it's really just a choice. You just need to choose the right yeah, thing. Yeah, so that's, that's the least true of the things that we've set up here. Um, it's not a choice. It very rarely is a choice. Very, very rarely. Um, for you to look at, if you're a heterosexual, for you to look at um, a lesbian woman or a gay man and say, it's a choice. The best way I know to get to the deceit of that is to ask you this. Can you choose to be attracted to the same sex? And as easy as it is for a heterosexual to, true, to choose sexual attraction to the same sex, everybody's like you, all of us, we have very little control over our sexual attraction. It just is. It is very rarely a choice. In fact, so rare that I don't know anybody who that's the case for. I just think statistically maybe it's possible. But this idea that it's a choice is harming relationships because it's producing in Christians a posture that what you need is repentance over the choice. 
it re, you re, we really do need to think in our minds that when it comes to sexual attraction, the, if you're a heterosexual, the homosexually attracted person has as much choice as you have. Did you choose to be attracted to the same sex? Yeah, that, that's not true. It's not helpful. It's harmful. Okay, when you spoke in the beginning about with Jonathan Haidt um, kind of having a gut feeling yeah, of something. Yeah, moral intuition. The moral intuition. Is that the same thing as one's conscience? <laughs> <laughs> I don't talk about it. <laughs> I thought it was a good one. <laughs> that is way out of my league. <laughs> The nature of consciousness, of conscience. Um, I think if I'm not speaking in a like uh, philosophically precise way, I, I think so. I think what a lot of people think, I think, there's, I think there's probably a lot of overlap, but we, yeah, I think there's probably overlap in the way we use that word on the street. My conscience this or that. Yeah, I, um, I'm not going to violate my conscience. Yeah, I think a lot of times when people are using language in that way, it, it is the kind of thing that Jonathan Haidt is talking about when he talks about your gut kind of view. What do you think, Milt? You, are, you're, you know more about this kind of philosophy than I do. I like your answer. <laughs> Short answer, yeah, it's about the same thing. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Okay. Is that, Mike, anything else and before? Oh, Joanna? Okay. And then I'll tell you about some books and invite you to next week. Thanks. Um, how can parents and grandparents help their children and grandchildren or, or young people help their friends who have been shaped by such different campfire stories? Hmm. I think that's the million-dollar question. It does strike me that in the church, the conservatives didn't let their children watch Game of Thrones, but they did let them watch Frozen. And I think that Game of Thrones would have been easier to re-educate my children after watching than it was letting them watch Frozen. Frozen is like a Trojan horse. We all loved it, and we let it in. Now, I'm not saying let your two little children watch Game of Thrones. I didn't watch Game of Thrones. <laughs> I also don't think the answer is watch nothing, by the way. I don't think that's possible. What you're asking is the question I'm driving at in this whole series. How do we live as a minority missionary community within a society? We know one answer is to leave. Whether it's leave physically or just have no secular um, stories come in. Here's the problem with that. The problem with that is sin runs right through all of us. And I'm trying to show how a secular age is filled with both the Spirit of God 
and with destruction and how Christendom was filled with both the spirit of God and destruction. There is no safe place to stand. So I don't fully know the answer to that, but I know what's not the answer. And what is not the answer is to think you can get to a pure place. Because I guarantee you, this heroic arc, what, what is that great children, uh, Odyssey? What was that Adventures great TV show? Huh? Adventures in Odyssey. It, these stories are in Adventures in Odyssey. Like there is no pure place. And if I'm going to try to get my kids into a pure place, which of you get to get in the room with them? So I know what the answer is not. The answer is not just watch anything in the world. And the answer is not try to leave entirely. The, the answer is the kind of thing that happens in Jeremiah 29, where we're supposed to move into Babylon and live our lives with the Babylonians as a subversive minority missionary society. And how to do that, wow. I, I think one of the keys is we need really good youth ministries. There, there's a moment in a child's develop, uh, development where it's adults their parents' age that by God's providence have the deepest shaping into their life. That's the philosophical justification for youth ministry. Also, there's a lot of research coming out right now about children's faith development and teenagers' faith development that show that group experiences of, of lots of fun and joy connected to faith moments are key to faith development. So I, I think that it takes a whole community who are going for this together where we're trying to figure some of these things out together. But I, I don't know if I have much more than that. Do you, Joanna? <laughs> <laughs> Do you, Mike? You raise children. Um, okay. Okay, I'm going to tell you about a few books. And they're going to range from the really nerdy to the really just like normal people books. So a couple of things. One, um, this is a book by Tim Keller, Making Sense of God, An Invitation to the Skeptical. And he has like three chapters on identity in here that a lot of the kinds of ways I was talking about identity, this is helpful. Um, if you struggle with anxiety... Tim Keller preached an amazing sermon that got turned into a little bitty book that is wonderful. It costs like $4. And it, the title is The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, The Path to True Christian Joy. I think it's a really good, like, quick read that gets at some of this stuff. Now, um, if, if you're a total nerd like Milk Matter <laughs> or me or somebody else, the, the most important person writing on a secular age and coming to grips with it is the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor. And these are the two books where he basically tells the story of, of secularity. The, this is very serious philosophy. If you're a philosopher, this is where the work is. Sources of the Self, The Making of Modern Identity, and Charles Taylor, A Secular Age. Now, one of the smartest guys I know got so tired of trying to get his friends to read the book because none of them could understand it that he wrote a book on how to understand this book. 
And um, I accidentally bought two copies. So if anybody wants the extra, I brought them both. If you can still deal with my highlights and such, how not to be secular, reading Charles Taylor. So that, that's, this is a very good introduction to that. There's a guy named Carl Truman who's a Christian. He's been writing about this stuff, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. Here's what he does is he tells his story, but here's the problem. He tells the story at the level of the culture war. And I, I think that's a lopsided way of telling this story because it puts you in the position that that's bad instead of giving you the posture of what's good in that, what's bad in that. But here's the nerd version. And then he came back, and a gift to all of us, he, he wrote the normal person version, the little version called Strange New World. Read this, but please don't turn into a culture warrior. And then the last thing is um, this book is written by... Um, a gay man who's a, who's a very committed Christian. He's married to a woman. It's called a mixed orientation marriage, um, which I'll talk a lot more about those. It's when one person in marriage is lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, and the other person is not. It's a mixed orientation marriage, and sometimes it works amazing, and sometimes it doesn't. Um, anyway, this is his PhD dissertation, all but invisible, exploring identity questions at the intersection of faith, gender, and sexuality. It's very good. Um, um, some of it gets quite technical, but it, it's really helpful in a way that this is more culture warrior. This is more like, hey, as a gay person, here's how this identity stuff works out in my life. Nate Collins, Nate Collins, all but invisible. I'll leave all these up here and you can come and look at them. All right. So I feel like tonight was the most boring of all the nights. Please come back next week. We'll talk about freedom and I'll wrap that up there. Mike, you have. Yeah, just a couple of housekeeping things. If you did fill out a card and we didn't pick it up, I'm sorry we didn't catch it. Uh, there's a, a basket up here with filled out cards. Just plop it in there before you go. Also, we'd love to get your pencils back and any blank cards and you can throw those in this basket. Okay. And one more thing. One more thing. For the next eight weeks of the series, on Wednesdays from 3 to 4 o'clock, I'm having open office hours. If anybody wants to come and chat about any of this stuff, we'll have tea and cookies, and we'll sit around like um, I did when I was studying in England with my professors and chit-chat about these things. So um, really, especially if you're nice, please come to that, and we'll... Um, it'll give you a chance to process and talk. My office is just right upstairs here, 3 o'clock every Wednesday. Secondly, by Thursdays, we send out the manuscript. It's on our website. If you click each lecture, and the manuscript has a lot more, and it has um, footnotes. Yes, Janelle? There's a lot of doors, so if you're coming at Oh, very good. If you come during the week to meet with me or anybody... You come into this door that outside over here, it's the Federal Street door. There's a doorbell you ring, and they'll send you right on up. And we'll have tea and coffee and cookies and talk about this stuff. All right, see you all later.